I am your host, VS Coogan, and welcome to The Maverick On Air, where every month I introduce you to some of the most unique minds around the world who have chosen the path less traveled, challenge conventional wisdom, and are pushing the boundary of achievement. Join me on this journey as I try and unravel the secrets to their success to help inspire you to be all that you can be. Today on our fourth episode, I am joined by Hassan Kuba. He's a startup mentor to young entrepreneurs, a corporate workshop trainer, an international speaker and co-author of The Unfair Advantage. In this book, Hassan and his business partner, Ash Ali, an angel investor who was the first marketing director at Just Eat, explore the unfair advantages that most successful entrepreneurs and companies use to get ahead of the competition. Hassan and Ash devised a unique framework that will enable you to identify and leverage your own unique advantages to help you succeed in a world that is not a level playing field. Hassan, welcome to the Maverick on Air. Thanks for having me on, Kugan. Now, there's quite a lot I want to cover with you today, but before we do so, it'd be good to learn a bit about your background. You know, you've got an interesting journey, so it's certainly right that we start with where it all began, um, how you got started in the world of business. I mentioned in the book as well that I don't consider myself a natural entrepreneur, and people find that quite curious that I describe it like that. And I think it's because there are a lot of entrepreneurs and business people who've always been doing that from a young age. And I wouldn't say that was me. So I came to London when I was three years old. I was born in Baghdad. I came with my family and yeah, we were just escaping from the situation that was in Iraq. And uh, I've lived in London my whole life and uh, educated here as well. And I thought I'd kind of go into medicine, to be honest with you. I'll make a, a joke on my TED talk and in the book about how my parents got me a doctor cake when I was uh, one year old. And uh, it's that typical thing of like, um, I guess it's people from background from developing countries. They often, or just immigrants in general, they want more security for their children and their professions and being a doctor or engineer or those kinds of typical paths are just so much more encouraged and common. So yeah, I never considered entrepreneurship. But what happened is I dropped out of my path to becoming a doctor, basically, after six months, and uh, much to the dismay and shock of my parents, um, but they were okay about it, really. But they just didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. I eventually ended up studying economics at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, which has got a good focus as part of the University of London, and it's got a good focus on developing countries, so the Middle East, China, that kind of thing. The typical path from there is just to go into finance or to work in the city, and that didn't appeal to me really. Um, For me, I was ambitious and I wanted to make a lot of money and have good impact, but I didn't see the purpose of doing that when you're working like crazy, crazy hours and basically you're cash rich but money poor, uh, but time poor, I mean. So I kind of, when I graduated, I just thought, let me just think about what I want to do right now. I had saved up my student loan money. I've been frugal with it. So I, I actually invested it into an online course that I came across, which I was very skeptical about at first. But I took the plunge and uh, after a lot of fear, a lot of experience of kind of hard work, hustle, kind of got there in the end of creating a passive income business inspired by the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss. It was basically through that course that I got into entrepreneurship, to be honest with you. So in that sense, like I learned it as a skill. It wasn't something that I was drawn towards. And that's why I don't call myself a natural entrepreneur. Unlike my co-author, Ash Ali, who's kind of been selling stuff since he was a kid. Unlike other people like Gary Vee talking about hustling since he was a kid. Yeah, that wasn't me. But yeah, that was my path. It was more a case of like, 
I was kind of following more what I didn't like. That makes sense. As in staying away sure. from what I don't like. Oh, I don't want to have that cubicle life. I don't want to be in the office all the time. I don't want to be working on a very insular space. I want to learn about the world. I want to do things out there. I want to have freedom. And that's kind of how I ended up down this path. And how did you meet your business partner, Ash Ali? I'm guessing that was a quite a big turning point in your life, right? Yeah, we met just at dinner. It was a right place, right time kind of thing. So it was a serendipity thing. I was in, I was traveling around Southeast Asia, but I had come to London for a bit, just thinking about what to do next. And I uh, went to a business dinner, met Ash there, and uh, we just became friends. We didn't think about working together at first, but because I had that free time, the kind of the luxury of that free time, he was like, yeah, come over to the, my office. Um, I'm getting a lot of startups pitching me at the moment. And so I started to kind of go in with him and became an investment partner with him. And it was through that work and through a startup idea that we started working on, which was about how do we filter all these requests for investment, all these pitches. And we started really thinking about this problem and this idea and thinking about if we can use AI to solve it. And what we came to is this idea that actually in the very early stages, it's all about the founders. So then you have to kind of analyze the people behind the company in those early days, more so than anything else, really. That's how we developed the concept of the book of the unfair mm -hmm. advantage. And just to clarify for those listening um, who may feel the word unfair has a slightly negative connotation to it, how is the word unfair used in the book and what you teach? Yeah, so we use the word unfair advantage to mean anything which gives you a competitive edge. Something that isn't is unfair because it isn't necessarily earned or worked for. It's often it's kind of mostly luck. There are some unfair advantages which you can develop. So you can develop expertise and we can kind of go into the different categories of unfair advantages. But for the most part, it's like the education we had growing up. It's the privilege of country we grew up in, this, the language we're fluent in speaking, in how we come across. Just the ability to take opportunities. It could be your strengths and talents, but it could also be your circumstances. And you mentioned luck and, you know, luck is something that I've been intrigued with for many years. Uh, Vinod Koslos, the founder of Sun Microsystems, it, once he did a talk at Stanford University and um, one of the members of the audience asked him, you know, what's the number one key ingredient to success? And he chuckled and said, stay alive long enough to get lucky, right? <laughs> so, uh, which, you know, it, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I'm sure you can understand what he's trying to get at. Um, could you maybe share some examples of kind of well-known entrepreneurs that people can relate to where on the face of it, it may seem like it's pure grit, hard work, determination. But when you look behind the curtains, um, they've actually had some lucky breaks. Yeah. So a big core concept of the book is this idea that I feel like people often fall into one of two categories. And, and these are kind of caricature, extreme categories, really, where one side would be like, success is all about hard work and hustle. Whoever's successful deserves it. And whoever isn't, it's because they didn't work hard enough. And it's that kind of view of the world. It's looking at the world through this meritocratic lens, as if we live in a pure meritocracy. And your station and position and status in life is purely based on the work that you've put in or not put in. So in other words, one way to look at it is if we lionize and pedestalize the super successful, and by success, we're talking superficially on a financial kind of, let's say, financial and career and level. If we pedestalize them and say, you know, they deserve all their success and purely think of them as people that we can learn from and that completely merit it 100%, then by the same token, then we have to look down on those who are not successful in life those who have done badly, those who are poor or homeless. And we have to say that, well, if the successful people deserve their success, then the flip side, the dark side of that is that they deserve their failure. The poor people deserve to be poor. And that's a horrible idea. 
and an idea that probably if we examine in ourselves, we wouldn't really agree with. So there's the other side of the coin, which is the opposite of this, is to believe that everything is pure luck. The role of the dice is completely based on luck, but then that's not believing any kind of human agency or free will. So we're kind of getting into philosophical space here. And I, w- I would say that's inaccurate as well, because if it was pure luck, there's something that's quite funny, which is I've heard some analysis of success of, for example, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaways, which is one of the most successful kind of investors and investment companies in the world. And they say, well, you know, statistically speaking, there is going to be an investor out there whose bets all work out. Statistically speaking, there are some people that are just going to succeed more than others. And th- that's true to an extent, but you can't fully believe that it's, there's no skill at all. And the same for any kind of success, whether it's in sport or whether it's in whatever it might be, right? So life is somewhere in the middle. Where do you think that stems from? Do you think parenting has a bit to do in that? You know, as kids, we're always told you can be whatever you want. And the reality is as you get older, you you very quickly realize that's not true. And you give a very great example in the book um, in, in basketball. Um, you can be a very good basketball player, um, you know, over 90% um, three-pointers, but you're five foot two. Are you going to win multiple championships like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant? Probably not. You might be a very good basketball player in your remit. So do you think certain things, it's just innate, it's, it's genetics? It's, yeah, absolutely. It's, That's why they have weight classes in wrestling or MMA or boxing, whatever it might be, right? Because it's not the same. Being born a woman, there are different leagues for men and women because it's not the same. You don't get Wimbledon finals, at one man and one woman. It just would be unfair. There are unfair advantages out there, right? And the truth is, it's we don't live in a pure meritocracy and neither do we live in a purely luck-based world. I think you were saying, where does it come from? It, it does come from what your parents tell you, what the media tells you. It's a social conditioning type of thing. I think in poorer kind of more developing countries where it is actually less of a meritocracy, right, than we have in the West, they're obviously going to, this idea of unfair advantages comes as much less of a shock to them, right? It doesn't even come as a shock here in the West. But, you know, if you consume, so I used to consume a lot of self-help and motivational content. Tony Robbins and and the like. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And at the same time, you can go too far with it and believing that everything, because they don't talk about that. You know, the dark side that I spoke about, which is that there are people that believe in the law of attraction, that whatever outcomes you have in your life, you've somehow attracted that to yourself. That has a really dark side, a dark underbelly to it. If somebody's really poor or disabled or underprivileged or unfortunate in some kind of other way, it's somehow their fault. Are we victim blaming here? It makes no sense. So what I really was yearning for is, and I saw a gap for, is something which takes a more realistic look at success. So we talk about the difference between a growth mindset in the book. Mindset we talk about as being the foundation to every unfair advantage. And you can either have a growth mindset, as Dr. Carol Dweck talks about, or you can have a fixed mindset. And growth is about, yeah, I could achieve whatever I set my mind to. I can learn to do something. And a fixed mindset is if you don't believe you can step up to a challenge if you see an obstacle but you don't think you can get past it like i can't play basketball so i'll never be good at basketball we talk about the the reality growth mindset where it's somewhere in the middle where it's like you know there are some some limits to physics and reality and real life I think it's definitely an interesting topic and I think the book does a fantastic job of delving into a lot more detail about that because as you say you know you can work 24 hours a day seven days a week and you might not reach you know the level of success that maybe somebody who put in a fraction of that now what does it come down to and I think as you say it's a bit of a dark topic because they need to understand and kind of be aware of why it hasn't worked out maybe sometimes 
it's just fate. Sometimes maybe the concept or the business model or the idea is just not worth pushing any further, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of timing is another thing that I want to get your thoughts on. How important is timing? There was a great TED talk, which I can't remember off the top of my head, um, where the speaker kind of analyzes a bunch of very successful startups over the last 10 years. And they did some analysis and found out over a number of factors, timing was the biggest driver in terms of success. So it'd be good to hear your, your take on that. Yeah, so it's huge. So this is kind of talking, I would say timing is a bit more on the luck side of the equation between if you look at the spectrum as hard work on one side and luck on the other. This is more on the hard work, uh, more on the luck side, sorry. This is the TED Talk by Bill Gross, and um, he founded Idea Lab, and he was actually also the founder, I believe, of an early search engine. Overture, that's right, yeah. And they pioneered, I think, uh, pay-per-click. That, that was really interesting. And one of the ideas that was kind of stolen and adapted by Google, not stolen in a bad way, but kind of inspired by them. Yeah, so timing is just huge. They talk about the idea of being at the right place at the right time. I um, recently gotten into some Twitter debates with people talking about Elon Musk because I've just released a new series on him. And um, they talk about how, oh, yeah, you were just in the right place at the right time. And your dad owned an emerald mine. And that's why you're successful. And, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, they're trying to discredit his success by talking about right place, right time. And yeah, that's a huge component. So one of the things that we spoke speak about as unfair advantages is your location. And we call it location and luck, which is right place, right time. And yeah, timing is huge because uh, technological trends are all based on the timing. For example, the virtual reality, this is an example we give in the book, virtual reality has been a trend that's been spoken about for the last 12 years, 10 years, 8 years, something along those lines. And um, in fact, it reached a crescendo in 2014 when Facebook acquired Oculus, I think for a billion or over a billion, I can't remember the numbers now, but a huge amount of money. And uh, everybody was like, wow, virtual reality is coming in, these headsets are coming in. And you know what, it's 2020 now, it's six years later, and we're still not many people using VR headsets. So it was just one of those things where the timing, well, Oculus got lucky maybe there, or maybe it was just Facebook wanted to sort of invest and kind of get the talent in their team early. But all these other startups that are in VR, they haven't done well. I've received a lot of those pitch decks myself in terms of them wanting funding. And um, the timing hasn't been right, even though it seems like it was. It's still too early. It's going to come one day, but it's still too early, right? So it's um, that's just one small example of timing. Another thing you can look at, so one other example I give in my TED Talk is of Facebook. So Facebook had a lot of unfair advantages, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook team in general, even their location. So location and luck, the place was Harvard, so... And they limited it only to Harvard students at first. So it had a a kind of exclusive elite kind of vibe to it. It made it really cool. Everybody wanted to be part of Facebook because you were a Harvard student if you were on Facebook. And then they expanded it out to Ivy League schools. So it became like, okay, so it's a really cool place to be because only the top, top students of the top universities in America are on Facebook. And then they expanded out to other universities and then to the wide population. So that was the location side. But in terms of timing, first of all, they weren't the first to do um, social networks. And people have this idea that being first is always best. And it's not necessarily the case because you have to educate the market when you're first. So that can be an extra cost in terms of your marketing and it's an extra friction point of getting customers. 
Now, Facebook came along when MySpace had already established stuff and all these other ones before, like Six Degrees. And over here in the UK, we had uh, Friends Reunited and stuff. Even before We had High Five, I remember, didn't we? High, high Five. Yeah, there, there's quite a lot. There's Orca, I think. There were all these social networks. So Facebook was nowhere near the first. But what had happened is it came at a time when people knew, especially from MySpace, people knew what a, a social network was, but it just hadn't been executed well yet. So Facebook just went for really strong infrastructure. They learned from the lessons of, uh, I think it was Friendster who had really bad technology as they, they grew too fast. Basically, the technology couldn't handle it and it became too slow and buggy. Um, so Facebook learned from that. They grew slowly from the lessons there. And also the timing was great in the sense of camera phones were just coming in when Facebook was growing. And before camera phones it, and before kind of smartphones in general, it was very difficult to upload a profile picture, which is very essential for social networking, really. Um, we used to have to, I don't know if you remember this, getting a digital camera and plugging it into a computer or a laptop to get the photo and to put it on Facebook. So I, I remember doing that when I was in sixth form. So timing technologically was perfect. It was really good timing for them because that switch to mobile was just starting. So when they first started out, people had to order takeaways on their computers. A lot more friction than just doing it on your phone. When mobile sites came up and apps and iPhone came out that same year that Just Eat came out. And the iPhone came out in 2007, roughly when Facebook started to become open to everybody and started to really grow and get traction. These are just a few examples, but timing is absolutely massive. The timing of the economy, like right now we're in COVID lockdown and we're probably going to go into a depression in terms of economically. So you have to bear that in mind when you're starting a company. It's not necessarily a bad time to start, but it might be difficult to raise funding, for example. And just on the topic of timing, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on this. You know, we can talk about timing now in hindsight and look back of all these successes and say, and kind of join the dots and have these discussions. But do you think in that moment, in that time, whether it was kind of Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg or, or Jack Ma, um, you know, whoever, they were thinking about timing or do you think they just had an idea, they rolled it out and serendipity luck played its part and right place, right time, uh, like Airbnb, or do you think that, you know, they try to time the market, which I'll be very surprised. <laughs> yeah, this is a really great point, Coogan. So this idea of narrative fallacy, where we can look back on something and kind of create a, a narrative out of it, a story and go, oh yeah, this worked because of this and that and the other, and we can simplify a story of success based on something. And especially the company itself and all the founders would create a kind of almost a founding myth. It's like a Netflix, they say, oh, we got the idea for Netflix, which originally was a DVD rental, online DVD rental kind of platform before it became streaming. That's very interesting in terms of timing as well, because he definitely timed it right because he saw DVDs were coming. So let me do this. They're cheap to mail because they're not heavy and bulky like video cassettes, which were heavy and bulky and difficult to mail off. And he always had the idea to stream it, but he just thought, I need to wait. I need to wait for everybody to get broadband and for streaming to get better. So um, the founder, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, definitely did time it. And I know a lot of them just stumble into it. Just on the topic of Netflix, um, from what I recall, Blockbuster failed to kind of accept how things were changing and the role technology was having and they kind of didn't really believe in the Netflix model and they paid the price for that um, and I think Carl Icahn the investor invested a lot in Blockbuster and he lost a lot of his investment but then the second time around he invested in Netflix made three times as much you learned from his mistake then <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly he learned from his mistakes um going on to the miles framework because somebody who's listening right now may think this is all interesting and quite good to know but 
from what we've heard so far, there's nothing we can do, right? But that's uh, not the case because yourself and Ash devised quite a unique framework here, which um, I would love for you to share with us. Yeah, so it's a way of auditing yourself and finding your own unfair advantages or just to understand how they're categorized or the different types of unfair advantages that exist. So we call it the MILES framework and it's an acronym. M stands for money. So having money is an unfair advantage. Very simply, I give the example of a startup called White Hat, which was founded by these young 30-somethings. And it was all about getting people into apprenticeships and instead of like what they call useless university degrees. And in their first year of trading, they made a loss of £600,000. But luckily for them, they had an unnamed investor give them an interest-free loan of £600,000 that first year, or maybe I think more, maybe 800000 I can't remember the exact numbers now. But basically, it turns out that the founder of this startup is Ewan Blair, the son of Tony Blair, who the tabloids called Moneybags Blair because of charging like £250,000 per speech after he came out of office of being a prime minister. Yeah, money is very clearly an unfair advantage. Trump says he had a, a small loan of a million dollars from his dad, right? And, and this is, I think, the 70s, when when a million dollars is like, what I don't know how much that is in now, in the money today, like close to $10 million. Yeah, absolutely. Money is an unfair advantage. So that's very straightforward. I, I stands for intelligence and insight. Intelligence can be kind of your book smarts and your IQ and what we usually refer to when it comes to intelligence, but it's also your emotional intelligence, your EQ. It's also, you know, your ability to work with people. So that's very important. And the third type of intelligence we speak about is the creative intelligence, which is so essential and, again, undervalued and sort of not tested for in schools and our formal education system. Intelligence and insight. Insight is all about having a unique perspective into a problem. Insight is about having finding a gap in the market, let's say, is, is having an insight. One nice example I like to give is Sarah Blakely, who's a self-made billionaire founder of Spank, which does uh, undergarments for women, which kind of controls and holds and gives them a nice silhouette. And she had that unique insight, being a woman, she was wearing tights in hot Florida heat. We got a case study of her in the book. And she had that insight of, if I just cut off the feet of tights, then it can create a nice silhouette. I'd love to wear that under my clothes, under a dress, whatever it might be. So it's funny because that insight, a man probably wouldn't have had that insight, right? It's a unique insight. And insights are very, very powerful, unfair advantages. Um, it could be an insight into a specific market. Maybe you've worked in a, you have some domain expertise, maybe whether it be as a doctor or as, you know, whatever it is, you kind of can get insights into an industry when you've worked in that industry. Moving on to L, location and luck, which I've touched on, right place, right time, very crucial. E is for education and expertise. Education, you can kind of think of as your formal education and what you've learned and the level of education. You know, here in the UK, if you have a private school education, you're much more likely to get better jobs. You're much more likely to have more success in your life. Sadly, but it's true. And uh, expertise is kind of what you can build through experience. Let's say you can use that using self-learning. Lifelong learning is so essential and we can upskill ourselves and learn online and take different courses and something that I did myself by taking that online course. Expertise can be a very powerful unfair advantage, which we can all develop. Um, and S, finally, S stands for status. Now, status is all about how you come across. It's like your personal brand. It's people's snap judgments of you on first impressions. This is where biases come in, prejudice comes in. Um, it could be positive or negative, right? You could. There's loads of different things that come into play when it comes to status. And it's one of those kind of brutal truths about life is that, you know, it's going to affect your business, it's going to affect your career, is how you come across, 
how you speak, how you dress, how you look, um, even race and gender and all that kind of stuff comes into this one. But also your that's your outer status, you could say. Your inner status is also important. And that also affects how you come across. So that's your confidence and your self-esteem and um, it reflects your mindset. And that's the link between your inner and outer. And one final thing for status is your network. It's so, so important who you know. You know, they say it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's we put that under status because people like to increase their status by who they're associated with, by who they know. That's why name dropping is a thing, right? So having a powerful network is a huge status factor. So that kind of covers the miles and all the different types of unfair advantages. And that's all on the foundation of mindset, as we mentioned. Great. So you have these five um, categories. How would somebody go about using them? What would the process be? You know, you mentioned um, it's an audit framework. Um, What would you recommend um, somebody do to extrapolate their strengths and weaknesses by using this framework? So there's a well-known phrase, which is know thyself. So a lot of what we teach in the unfair advantage is self-awareness. Self-awareness is a process. It takes time to figure out what you're good at, what your personality is like, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and whether that's in yourself or in your circumstances. So number one step is awareness, just knowing about this concept, just hearing about it. You can kind of start pondering on it, where you're strong and where you're weak. And here's the essential thing that we spoke about, one of the core concepts we talk about is this idea of them being double-edged swords so do not despair if you feel like oh i wasn't born into a rich privileged background i don't have the typical looks of somebody who might raise funding or whatever it might be that you're looking for right you there are some hidden kind of advantages in what seems like a disadvantage so just as a simple example having less money is a disadvantage but it can be an advantage in that it makes you more creative so, you know, I say that necessity is the mother of invention because when you have a tight budget, that's when you think more creatively of how do you do some marketing or how do you get your product developed with less money. So that's when your creative juices really come into play. And that's really what differentiates successful entrepreneurs with those mediocre or unsuccessful entrepreneurs is to think creatively and outside the box uh, of ways that not everybody else is competing on. I find founders who just think, oh, I'll just spend money on advertising. And that's because they have the money to spend. But usually that's less effective than to kind of take a more manual and growth hacky kind of or growth scrappy approach where you kind of try and figure out ways to, like recently what I've been doing, I've been playing around with this. I've, I've done a new series on Elon Musk. I've mentioned I've been talking to people on Twitter. I found Twitter is amazing to get the word out about Elon Musk. There are loads of Elon Musk fans and there are loads of Elon Musk haters. And just to wade into that debate and to share the link for the article series, the newsletter series and the podcast has been effective. And it's those kinds of marketing tactics that can really help the creativity. But yeah, that kind of applies to almost all the Miles things. They pretty much all have double-edged swords in them. That's quite interesting. And if somebody has a void or a gap in some of these five pillars and they want to start a business, um, they can always, I'm, guess, I'm guessing, partner up with a founder or a number of co-founders who kind of substitute the areas they don't have, right? Exactly. That's You hit the nail on the head. This is the most important thing. We often get the question of, do we have to have all the Miles unfair advantages? And the answer is no. Um, you watch shows like The Apprentice, and it gives you the false impression that you need to be good at everything. They have tasks where like you need to be good at selling in the street and you need to be good at you know like creating an advert and that's just a game show like you in reality you don't need to be good at everything you can partner up with people you can hire 
different people to fill in those gaps of expertise. You can fill in those gaps of, I give the example of the WhatsApp founder, Yan Kuhn. Um, he's a very nerdy guy. He created, he's the technical founder and he's also the visionary behind it, but he didn't really have the extroverted kind of networking skills to raise the funding for it. And so he partnered up with Brian Acton, who did have that network, and uh, they became co-founders on WhatsApp. And what did they sell to Facebook for, like 20 billion? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Just on the top of my head, I can think of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak as well, right? You've got this ultimate techie, and you've got Steve Jobs, who has that charisma, that more of a salesy kind of approach that Wozniak didn't have. So that, that's interesting. So one of the questions that I have was... When starting a business, I personally know quite a few people who want to start a business, but have been delaying getting started for some time now. Uh, every time I ask them any new updates on the business, the answer is always a no. And most of the time when I've asked them, what's the reason for putting it off? Um, the answer is they're kind of waiting for a groundbreaking, unique idea that no one else has. But when I think about it, there are many companies um, that come to mind like Facebook and WhatsApp who took an existing model and enhanced it and became very successful. So you don't always have to come up with an innovative, unique, groundbreaking idea that nobody else has, right? Or, or am I wrong? Yeah. So in part three of the book, we talk about it's like a quick primer of how to start a startup where we try to distill like everything we've learned. Ash has got over 20 years experience, my six, seven years of experience. And uh, it was it's just like, how do we get everything into a nice summary just to get people started to take action. And as you rightly said, the biggest stumbling block people have is, I need to have an amazing idea. And they think it's all about the idea. Uh, I don't know if you've come across this. I've heard people so many times just casually say, oh, if only I had the idea for something like Uber. Oh my God, if I had that idea, that would be amazing. And it's like the value is not so much in the idea. It's more in the execution of the idea. Ideas are still important. But it doesn't necessarily have to be new or groundbreaking. It could just be a twist on something that already exists. It can be just be a new angle. Stripe, for example, is a payment processor. PayPal already existed. But those two young founders of Stripe, Irish brothers, the Collison brothers, they're both self-made billionaires now. And it's like, well, what was their unique twist? It was just, oh, let's make the code really easy for developers to implement, right? For just a payment processor. So it's, it's not necessary for it to be this kind of amazing new idea. And when founders try and get Ash or I to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement for their startup idea, usually it's a sign that they're inexperienced and naive because they think the value is in the idea and they're scared that people are going to steal the idea. And usually that's not where the value is. Sure. How would you say is the best way to come up with an idea? Is it maybe, I don't know, looking at an existing problem and, and trying to work out a solution or an existing concept and thinking, how can I tweak it? What would the thought process be for somebody who's a bit stuck? They want to start a business. They want to get out of the nine to five job, but they don't know where to start. They don't know where to go for inspiration for ideas. It's kind of like having so almost a radar. The back of your mind always asking yourself a question of where are there inconveniences or problems in day-to-day -day life. It's kind of a good way to start. You kind of just go, okay, where am I having problems? Where is well, somebody that I know, my parents or my kids, or where are they getting frustrated or having problems? And that's the insight that you're looking for, which I, I spoke about as such an important unfair advantage. By the way, the insight being the startup idea, and then the expertise being the way that you create the solution. It's your product. So that's another way to think of the Miles framework is the, the insight being how you find the problem. And it's just about looking for that problem, really. 
if you ask yourself about these kinds of inconveniences, I think going back to the Stripe example, I think they're both coders, Patrick and John Collison, who were the founders of Stripe. They're both programmers. So as programmers, they see the frustration of PayPal not being easy for um, programmers to implement, not being friendly to them. Um, and they thought, oh, we could just do a 10-line coding solution through their expertise in coding, and uh, that would be a lot better. I think that was kind of where it started from. So one way that we speak about is think, start by thinking who, rather than think what is my startup idea, think who am I solving a problem for? And often that who is yourself. So that's like scratching your own itch. When you have a problem in your own life, you think, how would I solve this for myself? And maybe others like it as well. That's kind of a good place to start to come up with a startup idea. And Insights is an interesting one. From what I remember, how Jeff Bezos started with Amazon, he was just very quick to understand how internet was going to have a, a massive influence on retail. You might be able to help me out with the story. Yeah, he's quite unique. Is He's one of the few people who did it based purely on data and insights. He was working in Wall Street as some kind of investment banker or something. And uh, he... It was 1994, very, very early days, or maybe even 93. And he saw this internet thing as a concept and he thought, and he was visionary enough and insightful enough to think this is going to be huge and all retail might move here is going to disrupt all retail. And from that moment, he thought he's going to set it up and be the everything store and sell everything. And he's amazingly managed to do that. People think wrongly that he just wanted to do a bookshop and sell books and then it expanded from there. But actually, he just thought to start with books because they're easier to transport and they're a small package but worth a decent amount. So he just started from books, yeah. <laughs> um, yourself and Ash get, I'm sure you guys get a hundred of pitches with people kind of looking for investment or expertise, etc. If you were to, I guess, reflect and look at some of the pitches you've had over the years, what would typically kind of get you excited and think, hmm, we've got something here? When they seem to have that unique insight, which I talk about, I think that's so big. If they have some kind of well-thought-out unique insight into a problem, and then at the same time have the, the team, the credibility in the team to solve the problem, that's a killer. Those are the two things that are great. Because if they can, having the unique insight into a problem is where you know there's a market opportunity, as long as the market size is big enough, etc. And then having that credibility as a team to have the expertise to pull it off whether it's experience, like a good technical experience when they want to make software or some kind of you know, technical product, or whether it's just in the sense of as entrepreneurs, they've been in business before, they're really successful as entrepreneurs. Those are the easy wins when it comes to like who you think, okay, these guys are going to do well. It's a bit like dating because what you more look out for is the red flags and red flags are when they go, there are no competitors or when they go, it's like Uber, but just better. And it's like, what? <laughs> they haven't got a, an insight into how it's better you know they're just going i'll just make it better and it's like well there's nothing you need to have some kind of presumably the people at whatever existing company whether it's uber or google or whatever have tried to be as good as possible so what is it that you're going to add to the to the mix and you mentioned credibility. If there's two founders, um, they don't necessarily have the depth of experience in that specific industry or domain or, or field, but they do have um, one or two advisors and non-exec advisors who are part of the team. Can that help kind of substitute for what they don't have? Yeah, definitely. Anything which can increase confidence. One of the things that we talk about in the book is don't always try to raise funding. Not every startup needs funding. And what you should do when you don't have that credibility side 
let's say you don't even have those kind of advisors because of when when people tell us we have these advisors one of the things that we do have to check in our due diligence is how they actually proper advisors to them or have they just want had a phone call with them because we've had that experience that we've been put down on people's pitch decks without our permission just because we once spoke to them so they'll say oh, okay yeah well we were advised by we have ali and hassan kuba as advisors because we once so really convincing investors is just about building confidence in people so one of the best ways to do it is just to get started and bootstrap if your startup idea can work that way it doesn't necessarily need upfront investment that's the best way to start is just to show that you can get started. You've got that initiative. You've got that get up and go. You can prove some kind of traction first. Before investors want to invest, before we even consider, we think, okay, so what have you managed to do so far? You just have an idea. Very, very rare do people get investment purely on an idea. And if they do, they're usually like serial entrepreneurs or something because how do you know that they can execute? That's usually the bigger differentiator. Fantastic. Now, we've really covered a lot here. Um, thanks for sharing um, all the information. So what's next for you, Hassan? What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so I've touched on this a few times. I'm working on this new series called Success Decoded. The feedback I've gotten from the book and we've gotten is how much people love the case studies. So we made sure to jam pack it full of case studies of people that we'd know, people in startups, entrepreneurs, and even people a bit outside of that, like Oprah Winfrey who kind of became an entrepreneur by owning her own network later down the line. And it's been fun just kind of analyzing and looking into the biographies of people and thinking, you know, what can we learn from them? So that's the kind of the hard work, the mindset side of success, but also what were their unfair advantages, the kind of luck side of success. So this series is about trying to see what we can take from them, but also see where we can't compare ourselves to them you know, negatively, because what we're looking at is huge outlier success stories. As you said, if we keep comparing ourselves to them and thinking, oh, no, it's just because I'm not working hard enough, I'm not waking up early enough, I'm not taking cold showers or pulling up my socks or being disciplined enough. Well, no, there are unfair advantages at play. A lot of these people are kind of child prodigies and like geniuses. You know, the word genius, if it was to apply to anyone, it would often be to these types of people. The first episode is about Elon Musk. And actually, the first three episodes of the podcast, so it's an article and podcast series. Um, the first three episodes are going to be about Elon Musk. I've already released the first one. It's called Success Decoded with Hassan Kuba. If you search for it on any podcast, you'll find it. And uh, you can also get the written version full of nice images of Elon when he was younger telling you the story um, on successdecoded.substack.com. It's a great podcast. I've listened to it myself. I could really recommend that for our listeners. So do check it out. So just to close up, Hassan, would it be fair to say, you know, for, for those listening, find your own unique advantages as much as possible and leverage that to the most to kind of position yourself in the best possible way? That's right. Just kind of the idea is play to your strength, right? Don't play to your weaknesses. Don't have, we find people having um, kind of quite random startup ideas or whether it be what career you want to go down or whatever it might be, always just play to your strength. What do you find easy and fun and spend your time doing anyway that others might find difficult or challenging? Where do you find that you're helping others, friends, family? Those are usually some unique talents that you've got. And then also think, how can you leverage your network? How can you leverage your status? How can you leverage your location? You know, how can you leverage the type of intelligence that you've got, whether it's people skills or whether it's kind of technical knowledge and kind of IQ? How do you play to those strengths to give you 
that kind of unfair advantage in success. Awesome. Great. And that's it, guys. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Hassan Kuba. If you found the content interesting and want to learn more, I would highly recommend you get yourself a copy of The Unfair Advantage. There are some absolutely great insights for everyone to take away. Thank you all for listening. There are many more great guests that will be joining us here on the Maverick on Air, so stay tuned. Our YouTube channel is now live, so if you like what you've heard so far, please do subscribe and follow us on either Spotify or iTunes. Your support would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care.